God rules. What do you think about that? Is the rule of God a blessing to you? You know, uh, to see if you might think, or what you might think about God's rule, you could check how you view authority figures in your very own life today. Are they a blessing or a curse? Maybe they just don't play much of a role in your life at all. When I was a sinful, rebellious teenager, I thought my parents were, without doubt, a curse. Uh, They were obstacles that stood in the way of what I wanted to do. And so naturally, if I was living for doing what I want to do, then anybody who tells me don't or you can't, well, they're going to be a curse. A curse, regardless of what they could offer. Uh, right? I mean, forget the fact that many of our authority figures have lived life longer than we have and probably, uh, therefore, have more wisdom than we do, even on certain areas, maybe not all, but certain areas. They have more knowledge than we do. They have more experience than we do. So if we stop at nothing to do what we want to do, authority will always be bad. But if we can come to acknowledge our limitations, our lack of wisdom, our lack of infinite knowledge, our lack of infinite understanding of judgment, our inability... Then we begin to appreciate all of a sudden and respect and desire authority over us. And even, dare I say, authority becomes a very good thing and a necessary thing. Do you see your limitations? Do you see your inability to always put yourself on the right path? Do you see your lack of wisdom? of knowledge, of experience. Well, I pray that today, as we look at Genesis chapter 34, we would see very much our limitations as men and women born into sin, and so, therefore, long for the rule of God. Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 34, which is found on page 28 of the Pew Bibles. As you guys turn there, if you're joining with us for the first time, we continue through our series in the book of Genesis. And Genesis can be broken up, once again, into two sections. Basically, Genesis chapters 1 to 11, which is the history, uh, basically the history leading up to the patriarchs. And then chapters 12 to the end gives us the history of the patriarchs. So the fathers of the faith, that is Abraham, that's Isaac, that's Jacob, that's Joseph. And today we're winding down the focus that we see in Genesis on Jacob's life. Now, Jacob actually, he doesn't die till the end of Genesis, uh, but in the next two chapters, so today and then a couple weeks from now as we look at the next chapter, uh, we see a clear conclusion to basically what is a series of Jacob's life. And as we look at the chapter, we have to remember that as Moses is writing down this history under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's not only meant to function as history, but it's also meant to teach Israel. It's supposed to be a tool for the people of Israel and all who would ever come to have faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Today's story, found in Genesis chapter 34, is a very sad and frankly disturbing story. 
and it presents to us man's inability to rule well when living apart from the rule of God. That's something that we definitely can draw out from this. It shows us man's inability to rule well when living apart from the rule of God. And the story here presents us with two assaults. The first assault is committed by the people of the land against Jacob's daughter, named Dina. The other assault is basically violence begetting violence, and this assault is committed by Jacob's sons against Dina's perpetrators. Now at this point in the story, Jacob, he's back in the land of promise, so to some degree, right, there should be natural rejoicing. It's been probably 30 years, maybe even 35 years, uh, some commentators say, uh, since he had been, since he had gone out. So if you guys remember, he left the promised land. He basically exiled himself because he stole from his brother, and then his brother responded by wanting to kill him. So that's the first concern, is how do I stay alive when he ran out of the promised land? The second concern, then, is uh, how do I find a wife? Because he's a single man, and if God's promise... Uh, if God's promises are true, which he said he was going to bless him with a people, so a lot of people, he was going to bless him with a land, and then one from his line would be a blessing, then you know you have to have a family if you're going to have people and a land, and, and one from your line even, you need to have a family. Uh, so 20 years he labors under a man, an unjust uncle named Laban, and then probably for about another 10 to 15, uh, he's settling in other places. But something's not quite right as we left off in last week's, uh, in uh, the sermon that uh, was last preached through Genesis. Without doubt, his family is back in the land of promise, but it's not exactly where God told him to settle. Jacob settles in the city, city of Shechem, but it's not exactly, once again, where God wanted him to settle. So if you look at 31 verse 3... Uh, God calls them to settle, go back to the land of your fathers. That is Hebron. 31 verse 3, go back to the land of your fathers. But here he goes to Shechem. And he stops about a day's travel short of the land of his fathers. That particular place of Hebron. And unfortunately it's there that his, father, or sorry, that his family runs into great trouble. And there's foreboding as the chapter begins. Look there in chapter 34, verse 1. Now Dina, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. Now we might not think anything about this, you know, mere description of what's going on here, but this without doubt is a strange thing. So the Canaanites had a reputation for great ungodliness as uh, as Dina's forefathers knew so clearly. The Canaanites had a reputation for ungodliness, yet Dina doesn't seem to share any of the hesitations that her elders did, her forefathers did. You know, when the forefathers would walk through lands that other people owned, they took great care to figure out how they were going to walk through it and not get killed. But here, Dina seems to be taking the initiative to just go and really mingle with the women of the land. I, it doesn't seem to be that this is a, a purely innocent thing. Another reason why this is a strange event is because, uh, frankly, in that culture, no woman would go out to do this by herself, as it says. It says she went out to do this by herself. Culturally, this just wasn't something you do. Now, if you're going to go to, let's say, your family's well, 
and your family might be very well known in the land, and maybe they even own all of the land, and they let other people stay there. You know, you go to your parents' well with, you know, your parents' sheep as you seek to water them. You know, that's one thing. But here she's going out by herself to mingle with the Canaanites. Where are her brothers? More importantly than that, where is her father? In this chapter, Jacob seems to be this aloof and absent father. You know, once again, this is very much the real spiritual life of people. You know, you got all the ups and downs, the highs and the lows. I mean, here, right after you see this high in Genesis chapter 33, now he seemed to be here in a low in Genesis chapter 34. So with the father seemingly absent, it's into this unfortunate gap that a barbarian of a man steps in. Again, this chapter, as we sort of zoom out here, this chapter is showing what life looks like when lived apart from the rule of God. And what is that like? Well, here, in the first assault, we see a man ruled by his passions. This is point number one, a man ruled by his passions. The first assault. This is verse two, look there. When Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. Now, as the majority of commentators note, this seems to be an act of a man who is sexually forcing himself upon this girl, who might be a young teenager. Um, And I say this seems to be because commentators aren't unanimous here. Uh, The word lay, while it is used for inappropriate sexual relations in Genesis, very much so, it can mean other things than forcing oneself upon another. Um, but most likely, this seems to be some sort of forcing upon. And, uh, you know, if you look at that verse 2 there, with a quick clip of the verbs, you know, you're, you're kind of meant to feel that, that this thing, just as fast as it started, so it ends, this horrible event. You look there in verse 7, and it gives a judgment on what Shechem has done here. This is something that the entire community knows. This is something that ought not be done. It ought not be done. Here we see in this violation all the glory of men, don't we? As represented by Shechem. Men living according to their own rule, determining for himself what ought to be done. Shechem sees. Shechem takes. And of course this results in the objectification and violation of women all to serve this man's own passions. According to scripture, sexual immorality is, without doubt, a result of sin. You know, if we don't have a concept of sin, I mean, how exactly do we explain such a violation and such a lewd act? In the fall of man, we see man's inability to rule as God charged him to rule. So where God created Adam and Eve in perfection in the garden, there was no sexual immorality. There was no abuse of authority or strength, but there Adam and Eve used their God-given bodies to really serve and give themselves to one another. And by God's great and marvelous design, the man and woman would be able to experience pleasure in the midst of it. But when Adam and Eve sinned against God, sin affected their ability to rule over these temptations and these passions. This is what Genesis 4, 7 says. Sin is crouching at your door. And his desire is for you, but you must rule over it. 
Well, if you're familiar with the story of Genesis and if you're familiar really with your own life, you know that man cannot rule over it finally. This is why we see a twisted sexual ethic kind of strewn all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. You have, in Genesis, for example, people taking multiple wives going against God's creation order. We see Noah's daughters taking advantage of their own father after getting him drunk in Genesis chapter 6. We see homosexuality and people ruled by their passions, desiring to force themselves upon others in Genesis 19 in Sodom and Gomorrah. And here again, we see Shechem committing this heinous act against Dina. One's own pleasure at the expense of another's pain. But God says these are things that ought not be done. Why is it that these are things that ought not be done? Whether in, in real life or even in virtual reality on the computer. Well, they ought not be done because the perpetrator uses his God-given strength or God-given cunning to take from the weaker as opposed to protect and serve. Isn't that what we do? Isn't that what others do, whether in real life or on the internet? They take in order to serve as opposed to want to protect and serve. Later on, when the law is codified, it is very clear that God stands against such acts. So much so that to do this, to violate someone in the way that Shechem does, is worthy of death. Another reason why uh, these things ought not be done is because it is a complete failure of man's God-given task to care for and rule the earth as God's very representatives, displaying in their rule the very glory of God to one another. Where God created life, so Adam and Eve were to also create and then foster and cherish and encourage life. Where God gave Adam and Eve were to give as well their energy, their time to cultivating a society. And we too, as created beings designed in God's very image, we are to foster life, not tear it down or tear it apart for a small price in order to meet our passions, whether carnal pleasure or if you've been paying attention to news articles, the desire for material gain like a Lamborghini. God's people... Christians, you and me, have the wonderful opportunity to give at the expense of ourselves and not to take as the, at the expense of others. And this is exactly what marks Christ's love, isn't it? He loves and reigns as the true king, as God the Son, displaying God's glory to the entire world and all at the expense of himself. He gives at the expense of himself, not takes at the expense of others. Well, unfortunately, it isn't only the pagan Shechem that cannot rule himself. In this episode, Jacob's sons fail in the same way, and this downward spiral of sin simply continues. I mean, to summarize what happens there, well, let's just go ahead and read it in uh, verses 5 to 7. 34 verses 5 to 7. Now, Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dina, that is Shechem. But his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with them. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry, because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel. 
by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. Shameful of Jacob here. Question is, why isn't Jacob indignant just like his sons are? He, he seems again to be kind of pausing and hesitating and kind of not doing anything. Uh, and that, I think, casts a shadow upon Jacob here and his reputation. Uh, in these verses, there's a twist in the story here. The reason why Hamar goes to speak with Jacob is because Shechem actually falls in love with Dina. There in verse 3, go ahead and look there. It says, he was drawn to Dina. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. He goes on and tells his father to go and get Dina to be his wife. So there in 8 to 12, Hamor desiring to please his son. I mean, there's, there's a failure there, of course. I mean, Hamor is also complicit in this sin because he doesn't do anything about it. He doesn't rebuke his son. And wanting to please his son, he approaches Jacob and the sons there and pitches them a union. Look there in verses 9 and 10. Uh, basically, he just says, be one of us. Take take it. Or let me have your daughter for my son. You, you, you go on and take our women and together we will be one people. And you, we will have this one land. Give us your daughters and you take ours and we will be one. It's interesting here how Moore proposes the very same things that God proposes, almost. He says, a people, you know, they're going to become a people with the land. He also promises the land themselves. I mean, Hamor legitimately possesses the land. Jacob doesn't own very much of it. you got to wonder, you know, with Jacob's down point in this part of the spiritual life, you've got to wonder if he considered it or not. Oh, we just don't know. I mean, ultimately, he doesn't. Well, let's see what uh, their answer is. That keeping in character, Jacob doesn't say anything. Instead, his sons say something. This brings us to the second assault. This is a man ruled by anger and vengeance. Point number two, a man ruled by anger and vengeance, not the Lord. The second assault. So knowing that they are going to carry out a counter-strike of revenge, they answer there in verse 13, deceitfully. Sin here is being born in their hearts. And if you yourselves know vengeance and anger, you almost want to say that they have every right to do that. If you know, if you understand vengeance and anger, you feel for them. But they're they certainly driven by this anger. Therefore, they want revenge. So they speak in deception. You see sin being born there and just sort of growing up and maturing and, and laying hold of these two sons of Jacob, or really all the sons of Jacob. And then these murderous thoughts give birth ultimately to a slaughter. You know, Jacob's sons here, they haven't lived the life of Jacob. Jacob had his ups and downs, and the Lord used those experiences to really sift Jacob, just as he did Isaac, just as he did Abraham. And so here the Lord is testing the sons of Jacob to make sure they really sincerely want to walk by faith and submit themselves to the rule of God. But here, in this particular moment, it's interesting that these sons kind of embody both Jacob, the deceiver, and Esau, the man who lives by his passions. It is very much like these sons have to choose. Am I going to follow Jacob or am I going to follow Esau? Which way am I going to go? The sons are green. Here they're tested. And as we continue in the chapter, or in the book of Genesis, we know very much so that they continue to be tested as they throw Joseph into the pit and sell him to the Egyptians. 
Look at 14 to 17. And uh, I'll go ahead and read that. All right, look at 13. We'll see what they answer. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because they had defiled their sister Dina. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Let me understand, let me explain circumcision here. God himself had given circumcision as a sign of the covenant. God had promised Abraham a people, a land, and he said once again that one from their line would go on and be a blessing to the nations. And the mark or the oath of the covenant was circumcision. I think it's pretty clear why, if we think about it today, you know, if they were to look down, they would remember without doubt that it was God alone who had done this, not themselves. They clearly aren't great in number. There's nothing beautiful inherent in Israel or Abraham that he chooses him. God just chooses them and then gives them this covenant sign that would forever remind them that God is doing this. And so if you were a Jew, which as far as I know is all of us, if we wanted to join God's people, uh, the men would have to take the covenant sign to enter into community. And if they genuinely believed from their heart and they wanted to worship God, they submitted to his rule, they experienced the blessings of the covenant. And so there, even Gentiles could enter into the covenant and be saved. But here, there's something sinister going on with Jacob. Jacob's sons using the covenant sign of blessing by which other nations could be saved or a symbol of salvation. They're using it as a trap to kill the nations. This is nothing less than taking the rule of God and subordinating it to their own will. In effect, they are kings against God as they are ruled by their own anger. Well, what is Shechem's response there in verse 18? 18 to 24, being smitten by Dina, Shechem and Hamor agreed. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and the son Shechem came to the gate, basically the business place or the, the town hall more or less, of the city and spoke to the men of their city saying, these men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in, trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them that they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. So basically every male or every able-bodied man was circumcised, everybody who went out to the city, or the, sorry, the city gate. And we know what is coming, don't we? This plot of revenge was birthed out of sin. They are returning very much evil for evil. And the problem is that they are in no place to establish the rule of law. Yet they persist. 
They could have prayed, right? Yet they don't pray. There's no asking Jacob what they should do. In fact, in Genesis 49, Jacob here alludes to the fact that he withdraws from his son's plan because that was hatched in anger and evil. He wanted nothing to do with the plan. Jacob's sons, you know, they don't, neither do they seem to really seek out any genuine reparation or reconciliation. Their eyes being glazed over with hatred and anger, there they see the only solution is death to the city. This is pure vengeance and retaliation birthed out of anger. Look at verse 25. On the third day, Simeon and Levi came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. You know, in the first, first assault, we despair, don't we, for Dina? It's clear Shechem did something that ought not be done, which God says is punishable by death. The second assault, now we despair over the actions of Dina's brothers. Both are crimes driven by passion, one by lust, the other by revenge and anger. Both lead to devastating consequences. Shechem's sin leaves a woman in the state that one should never be in. Broken. Violated. Jacob's son's crimes leave the people of God a curse to the nations. What God had told them they ought not be. But yet they are, as it says there in verse 30, a stink to the inhabitants of the land. So we see here how violence begets violence. This is, this is what happens when man seeks to rule themselves apart from the rule of God. And we, to some degree, all know and experience what this is like. I wonder how many of us, even now, experience some degree of guilt as we seek to rule our own lives. To reject God's rule. And this is the very nature of sin. Rejecting God's rule and opting instead to determine for ourselves what we think is best. So we saw the two assaults. Explanation of the passage there. Now let's think about how the Israelites were to learn from this. Let's think about how the Israelites were to learn from this. This is point number three. <coughs> Keep in mind, Moses is writing this for uh, the Israelites as they're right about to go into the promised land. He wrote down this history hundreds of years after the time had occurred. And by the time that, that uh, Moses is writing, God was moving to fulfill his promises. He had grown the people. He, had give, he, he chose Abraham. He then passes on the promises to Isaac. And slowly and slowly, the people of God are growing. They, they eventually goes to Jacob. Eventually goes to the 12 sons. And by the time they escape Egypt's clutches, they're at, as some commentators say, one to three million people. Right? That's a people. God is moving to fulfill his very promises to God's people. So there they are in their desert wanderings preparing to enter the land of Canaan. I mean, how exactly, the question is, ought they to rule themselves? This story reminded them, told them, not by their own law, but by God's law. Imagine being right on the cusp of the promised land and then hearing these stories. You're reminded of the time when one of, one of the land sinned against your grandmother in the faith. And then you're reminded about how your far forefathers took matters into their own hands and committed a crime of anger and vengeance. Instead, it seems, of, uh, instead of going to the Lord for direction, instead of going to the patriarch for direction 
instead of going to their tribal leaders, which God had given them by their grace. They take matters into their own hands. All of Israel at the time knew the outcome of such anger, the anger of Simeon and Levi, the two sons there. Um, And also uh, the fact that Shechem's crime was worthy of death, according to Deuteronomy 22. Uh, And then in relation to Simeon and Levi, you know, the Israelites are hearing what goes on when you rule yourself and not by the law of God. You turn over to, to Genesis 49. Go ahead and turn over there. End of Genesis. So they know Shechem's crime is worthy of death. Here they know too, Simeon and Levi's crime also has grave results. 49 verse 5, this is here when, when Jacob is finally blessing his children, uh, pronouncing upon them blessing, but those who have committed great and grievous sins, uh, they experience to some degree cursing. Verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. That's the consequence there. They are stripped forever of their reign and rule. We, Simeon and Levi were the second and third men, the sons born to Jacob. The first was Reuben. Reuben commits a sin. He sleeps with his, uh, more or less, his father's uh, wife's servant and then is removed from kingship. There goes the firstborn son. We're going to see that, that in a couple of weeks. Simeon and Levi, because of this anger, they too are stripped of their kingship rule and eventually the kingship line goes to Judah. So these are the results of what happens when a man is ruled here by anger. They are forever they forever come to stand as living examples of those who live according to their own rule. So there sits Israel, right, fresh out of Egypt, under slavery, about to enter into the land to start afresh a new life. And they hear the law of God by which they, uh, and, and sorry, they, they have the word of God, they possess the word of God by which they are to rule themselves. So here, just imagine that, coming out of slavery, and then to receive your very own law, the law is a blessing. The law is assistance. The law is help. It is direction. If you're visiting with us as a non-Christian, you you know that the Old Testament law has been much understood. Many read it today, and they wonder, uh, how exactly is this helpful or a blessing from God? Uh, Frankly, there are some, in fact, strange commands like... Instructions on what to do when your bull, your ox, gores a person to death in Exodus 21. Or, for example, when you dig a hole or dig a pit and your neighbor's animal falls into it and dies. You're like, what in the world is the point of this? How exactly is this a blessing to me? All of these might seem strange, but we are helped with Jesus' twofold summary of the law, which is love God and love your neighbor. Every command falls underneath one of those two things. Love God and love your neighbor. All of the law, all of God's Old Testament rule directs God's people's hearts towards God and neighbor in love. 
So it is indeed loving to put down an animal that has a propensity to put down people. Right, that's protection. That's love for other people. It is indeed loving to our neighbors to cover up a hole that I dug because, you know, my neighbors, they don't work, they, they don't, uh, uh, they're not working on computers. Their livelihood is their animals. So if we just happily say, oh, I don't care if people's animals fall into my pit, that's unloving to the people of God. So you see how even the, the strangest of commands go towards furthering a love and stoke the fires of people's hearts to God, as well as one's responsibility and love towards other people. So once again, imagine Israel going into land after 400 years of living under an unjust rule, the rule of Pharaoh. Now, all of a sudden, they possess God's rule. What a wonderful thing God's law is, which is why David himself says in Psalm 119.97, I love the law. It helps me love God. It helps me love other people. To the Israelites who believed and trusted in God, the law of God was liberation. Israel had been sustained by God. They had been rescued by God. They had been gathered by God. They had been sent into the land by God. And they have the written rule of God. The law of Moses. So the first five books of the Old Testament. And so they were to obey in faith as a response to God's salvation. Not in order to gain God's salvation. God had already pledged himself to them. He had already given himself those promises. He already established the covenants. And so they are to obey in response to God's salvation. That's how Israel was supposed to learn from these stories. Well, what does this have to do with us? The next point, the last point. What does this have to do with us? You know, for God's New Testament people, that is the church, God's law is even more liberating because we have been liberated by Christ to behold Christ. Let me explain something about the law. To the Old Testament people, the Mosaic law or the Old Covenant given to them at Sinai, that was good. But it was only, according to Hebrews, this is, it was only a shadow of the things to come, not the realities themselves. So since the coming of Jesus Christ, God's people have the very real thing. You know, if you follow a shadow, you come to the very real thing. You come to Christ the Lord. The law, that is the Mosaic Covenant, was by divine intent only temporary. It, only, it served a purpose, but only temporarily. First there was the Abrahamic promise, right? And then God wanted to add to that, and so he gives the Mosaic Law, but the Mosaic Law was only temporary. It was, as Paul says in Galatians, a guardian over people. A guardian over people. So we understand the idea of a guardian. You know, let's say uh, there is an owner of a house, when the owner of the house leaves, he then puts a guardian over the house to care for his things, to care for his people. And so the guardian there, he guides, he leads, he uh, instructs until the very real thing, the real master returns. And for the law of Moses, the guardian, uh, the, the law of Moses was the guardian over people. It was to be a blessing, yes, but in some different ways. It ordered society, praise God, that was helpful and that was a blessing. But another way that it helped people was that it exposed our sin and disobedience. The law of God exposes our sin and disobedience by God's divine intent. So Galatians chapter 3 verse 22 says this, The scripture, referring to, referring to the Old Testament law, imprisoned everything under sin. 
So why is it? Is the father who is over the law, is it because he's like a grumpy traffic cop who's eager to give out tickets? For me, I got ten of them, so, uh, you know, there must have been happy traffic cops delighting, maybe. Is, is he like that? I'm not saying the cops who gave me tickets were like that. Is God just this grumpy guy eager to find people who are breaking the law and that's why he gives it? No. Galatians 3.22 says, Scripture imprisoned everything under the law so that, here's the purpose, our sin is exposed so that the purpose, the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. It is so that when Christ, the righteous one who fulfills the law, comes back and returns as the master of the house, we then are freed and liberated to behold Christ in all of his glory. As the one who frees us from our sin, the law then leads us eventually to God's grace and God's mercy as shown to us in the cross of Jesus Christ. So we are to see sin and acknowledge that we are ruled by it. That's what the law does. Before the law was given, you know, Shechem, the people, uh, they not only had the patriarchs ruling over them, but they also had this internal conscience, as God says, as uh, the book of Romans says, that that was given to us in order to help us. It's, our consciences aren't always right, uh, but nevertheless, it is God-given. So that's what they were to be ruled by, the patriarchs and then their very own consciences. And they were supposed to see their sin and recognize that they cannot rule it. I wonder for us, when, when you guys see your sin, how is it that you try and rule over it? Maybe you cover it up, which is no rule at all. Maybe you pretend it doesn't exist. Or maybe you decide that you can try and work towards a clean state and earn your standing before God. Say, yes, I acknowledge I committed a grievous sin and now I myself need to work for it in order to stand before God righteous. Which, of course, cannot be done. If man kind of caused the problem, how can man actually give a solution? It's like when your computer breaks down and then you say, oh, you know what? I'm really going to trust in my own computer to save. When the very thing is the thing that broke down, you can't. That's what happens when man trusts in their own ability, which is no ability at all. The only way to escape the judgment of God is to embrace guilt just as God intended and then embrace God's grace. Christ is the one whose work alone is powerful to save. So the law was to function as a guardian until the true master arrives, exposing sin so that when Christ comes, we might behold all of his glory and power. Now, some of you guys might be wondering, regarding the law of Moses, you know, have you ever wondered why we don't have temple worship? Well, it's because Christ has already come. The guardian is no longer here. Now that the new covenant has been established through Christ's blood, the old covenant has passed. The law of Moses was useful. It served its purpose for a time, but then it led us to the real thing. So we don't need Old Testament worship because in Christ is where we meet God. We don't need Israel's sacrificial system because it's already been fulfilled in Christ, right? The Old Testament had sacrifices. And now that the real thing has come, it has accomplished our salvation once and for all, Hebrews says. Old, Old Testament Israel had a high priest who served on behalf of all the people, but he also had to serve on behalf of himself. 
he had to make, make atonement for himself. But the book of Hebrews says that Jesus is our great high priest who enters into the Holy of Holies and makes propitiation by his own blood because he is the final sacrifice and because he is the great high priest who needs not serve on behalf of himself because he is without sin. He is God the Son. Christ is the realities, the reality that the law of Moses pointed to. Christ said in Matthew 5, 17, I have come to fulfill the law. Romans 10, 4 says Christ is the end of the law. That is the goal of the law. Does that mean then that we, uh, that there is no law? That we can do whatever we want to? That we can use grace as a license to sin and not live in holiness? The answer is no. While we do not live in the Old Testament law, we live underneath the law of Christ, the law of love. And in that law, it teaches how to love God once again and love others. And with this law, we are set on a path so different than Shechem, so different than Simeon or Levi. So this law for us too is liberating. This chapter, Genesis chapter 34, told the Israelites, long for God's rule and don't be ruled by yourself. This tells us, be ruled by Christ's law of love who fulfills the Old Testament law and go on and love God and love your neighbor. So we too, like Israel, find this liberating if you're a Christian. We, just like Israel, were drawn out, not necessarily a slavery to other people, to a nation state, but slavery to sin. We too are rescued and we too are saved and we too are called to worship and now God calls us to respond to our salvation in obedience and holiness, right? That's liberation. For Christians, we see our sin, we see our inability, having been born into sin and actually having transgressed the law of God and earned for ourselves just punishment as we go against the righteousness of God. We see that. We see our lack of righteousness and then we see Christ. We say, give me that law of Christ because I love the law. Because in the, law, in the law, I see forgiveness. I see freedom of sin. I now know how to love other people. I now know how to love God. I see the love of God and the law of God, and then I love it. So this is what we say. We say, show me how to worship God by his law, because before I once was opposed to him. Show me how to love others in his image and give me commands, because before... I took pleasure at the expense of others. Show me how to forgive because before I could not. And even in relation to all of Jacob's family in response to the heinous crime committed against Dina, show me how to long for justice in the face of injustice in a way that honors God because before I was ruled by anger and vengeance. Help me to trust God when he says, do not repay evil for evil. Help me to trust God when he says in Romans 12 verse 9, do not take vengeance but leave room for the wrath of God. Help me when God says in, verse, in the verse after in Romans 12 verse 10, vengeance is mine, I will repay. That's liberation. Give me the law because... That's how Christ orders things in his kingdom, and I love Jesus. 
and in loving the law of Christ and obeying by grace by the grace given us, then we as Christians represent the true king, ruling truly as his vice regents, displaying his glory to the nations. Not being ruled by our own desires, not being ruled by our own passions and our own sins, but being ruled by the love of Christ. Christians are to be exactly what Simeon and Levi aren't by the end of Genesis. You see what they have made Jacob and his family there again in 30 and 31. Again, it says there, Jacob says, you have made me a stink to the nations. But a church that lives its life according to the law of Christ and God's grace and his mercy and his forgiveness as given to us in the cross, all of a sudden the church is an outpost of the heavenly kingdom in this host nation even though the host nation may never come to realize it. In the midst of all this chaos, the Israelites were taught to long for the rule of God. In the midst of our own chaos, we are taught to long for the rule of God. As we conclude, let me, let me speak to the non-Christian here. In these two assaults, it's very clear, Shechem is ruled by his passions, not God. Simeon and Levi are ruled by their anger and not God. How are you doing at ruling over your passions? Perhaps you know what it's like to rule yourself and end up in failure. And you can't shake that guilt that your very own conscience tells you is there. Aren't you tired of ruling yourself? Having to rely on knowing the next step always to keep up the facade of perfection. The wonderful thing about the gospel is that while God's justice calls for restitution to happen in this world, in this legal system that he has given us, he will not legally hold your sins against you eternally. If you repent and believe... You are brought into the family of God where you can experience the freedom of living life under the rule of God. Knowing what it means to love God and love other people and be freed really from the rule of yourself. Is it difficult to face some of your past? I've had to make difficult decisions too. Gone back to people I've stolen from. Gone back to people I've lied to. And having to had uh, confessed my sin to them. That's not, not an easy process. But we experience that having come to know and believe and trust in Jesus Christ, that that is a good and righteous thing to do. And even in doing so, I say to those that I have sinned against, I have sinned against you. And I am a Christian. And I want to make things right because that's what God calls me to do. That can be difficult. No one says it's easy. But isn't it wonderful that God promises to never hold your sins against you in eternity. And you can know this forgiveness even now. Repent and believe. Perhaps you have not sinned in such grievous ways as these characters did here in Genesis chapter 34. And maybe you think you do pretty, pretty good in terms of ruling yourself. You know, you're not so much of a bad person in comparison. Well, friends, you are not the standard. God says that you and me have sinned primarily against him. And it is he that will call you to account. The good news is that God's law and your conscience can lead you to Christ. Exposing your sin 
in order, by divine intent, to lead you to a forgiving God where you find liberation from all the lies, from keeping up appearances, from making excuses, from ruling over yourself when you so clearly cannot, and find escape from the judgment of God. Repent and believe. And you will find salvation in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for every sinner who would repent and believe, bearing the wrath that we rightly deserve. He takes upon himself. He bears the weight of sin that we all deserve in order that all the captives would be set free if they would only run to him. The one, the Lord, who breaks down the bars and smashes the doors and liberates sinners from their own sin and judgment. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord Jesus Christ, you are a righteous God. We thank you so much, knowing our own sin and knowing our own inability, that you give us the law. Because it shows us how we need to live. It shows us how we ought to worship you and honor you and glorify you. It shows us too how we can live to uh, serve other people and not take at the expense of others. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your law, your reign of grace, as you are indeed the king who rules, and you come giving us a new law, showing us how you fulfill all things through your own work and perfection and your death on the cross. Lord, we thank you for the liberation that we can indeed have as we experience freedom from sin for those who repent and believe, turn from their sins and believe. Father, we pray that even those who might be experiencing a certain degree of guilt from their conscience, knowing that they too cannot rule themselves, Lord, we pray that they would find forgiveness at the cross. Lord, what a glorious forgiveness this is. We pray, Lord, that you would help us press deeper into the fact that you have given us your Son in love. Help us know as we see our own sinfulness. Help us look to the cross and see the height and the depth and the width and the breadth that is your love to us in Jesus. As you save sinners, all by your grace, all by your mercy, giving us, granting us forgiveness when we did not deserve it. Lord Jesus, what an amazing Lord we have. And Father, what a loving Father we have. As you separate us as far as the east is from the west, so far, Lord, do you separate us from our sins in Jesus Christ. Help us here at this church, First Baptist Church, live according to your rule. Lord, we pray that the rule of love in Christ would be our ethic as we seek to give ourselves to building up this church and seeing other people come to know the love of Christ themselves. In your name we pray.